Hi everyone. Welcome to the first discussion of The Warrior Prophet, which is the second book of the Prince of Nothing trilogy by R Scott Baker. We are reading um I think now we've switched to a weekly cadence. We took a two week break there after The Darkness that comes before. We had a lot of fun discussing <laughs> that book. Go check out our discussions on uh my channel Reading by the Rainy Mountain and Steve's podcast Patreon. <clears throat> If you'd like to join us on these read-alongs, we are reading about a hundred pages every week um, and discussing them weekly. Uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. Uh, and and to sign up for the discussions or to just you know do uh, textual discussions, uh, come join us on the Patreon forum. Uh, with me, I have the usual group of friends. Uh, Carl, would you like to start us off with introductions? Yeah, I am Carl D. Albert, uh, self published fantasy author um, and very happy member of the page Dream forum excited to get going on this book Mike <laughs> yes hi everyone my name is Mike this is my first time reading the series I'm also a member of, of page chewing forum and uh, yeah really looking forward to delving into the second the second book the warrior prophet I'm Steve, and Mike, don't forget to mention that you're a co-host of Page Doing Comics. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> oh, you made yeah. that happen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Steve, and I'm uh, very happy to be here. It's my second time reading The Warrior Prophet, and I'm really curious to hear what everyone's thoughts are on this one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I want to say, for a book that has the reputation it does for or a series, I guess, not specifically this book, um, for how dark it is, it had some really warm moments in this first part, which, you know, immediately started to sour because, you know, Esmond and Akamian are flawed and don't know how to be happy together. But when they found each other, <laughs> that was just so brilliant. <laughs> they were definitely a highlight for me, maybe the highlight. Um, it did actually... I came out of that those sections I'm loving it and loving to see the relationship further developed and uh, seeing that warmth, which definitely I know it's not going to end well for them. And I know like, you, you know, they're destined for tragedy and uh, it's, this is just not the type of book series where they get a, a happily ever after. But um, it did make me frustrated with the end of the darkness that comes before the moment where we get the dramatic like reunion and I was convinced something was like, there was some weird magic stuff going on there. Cause it's like, why did a in not react to her? And I guess he was in shock. Mm -hmm. You know, he kind of talks about it here, um, which is an interesting choice, but it just felt like forced melodrama for me at the end of the first book mm -hmm. now, uh, mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't feel when I initially read it, but now seeing them immediately get back together, um, at the start of this book really rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just felt like it like it cheapened that ending or, or in a way that that ending wasn't even necessarily needed because um, I quite like them having the reunion because I know, again, I know it's not going to last forever. So it's nice to have the warm moments to make what inevitably is going to follow um, all the more tragic and impactful. Um, but yeah, I really, I mean, I think that was at the heart of this, uh, these first 100 pages and I really enjoyed it seeing their relationship and seeing how they're so clearly 
unable to communicate what they want and what they need with each other, but how they love each other so much anyway, in their broken, confused way. <laughs> just, what did you think? <laughs> I just interject one thing. That chapter when they are reunited is just nuts. Um, I think it's like it's uh, we're, we're seeing all of the 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 economy that comes out of war, I guess, and so people drinking and mm-hmm. you know searching for for pleasures, if you will. Um, it, but it's just like. I, I kind of had a, a nasty feeling from that chapter. And then he's like, he's with somebody else. And then he thinks he sees her. So I didn't think they were going yeah. to connect. I really didn't expect that mm. per se, but I didn't, it didn't bother me that they, I did want to see them come back together. I guess maybe uh, I'm a softy in that way, but, um, <laughs> but the chapter was really, um, yeah, I just, I remember writing down like, this is just uh there's a lot of kind of misogyny type of stuff happening the way people are looking at yeah. women i mean this is this is something that i thought about quite a bit after reading the first book um but uh uh you know it's i still found that chapter very engaging and that i thought the pacing was was good um so i i, I guess i was a little bit all over the place but um I really enjoyed this section. I don't know. I felt like I was enjoying this um, this book a little bit more. I don't know because I think it took me a long time to get used to the world um, and the darkness that comes before. I know Steve, you really loved that book, and but I, maybe on your first read, I don't know if that was the case for you because I feel like it took me a while to kind of get my footing. <laughs> But I think a lot of you have read like Malazan and, and, and I have not. And it's so, but I've read, you know, I've read like other, you know, fantasy books, like very, uh, fairly dense, but I did feel like more comfortable jumping into this book um, for some reason. Anyway, those are my. That's something I always like about sequels is that you have that, that comfort and the familiarity with characters. Um, you know, Malazan is actually famous for uh, even sort of subverting that. Right. Um, but it, it's, I, I, I'm right there with you, Mike, that I definitely felt like a lot more, like I wasn't as stressed, I guess. I don't, stressed is a strong word, but um, I definitely was a lot more comfortable coming into this book than I was for a lot of the first book as, you know, we were trying to get our footing in the world and to understand, you know, the different factions and, um, how everything relates uh, to everything else. Um, I, I'm right there with you on the, like that chapter was wild. Um, I, that we go from came in like having this, di- like frankly kind of disturbing, tragic, strange, tense encounter with this prostitute, this who he repeatedly describes as looking like very young, but is not young. And I was like, I have no idea how I'm supposed to take that. Like this, it was uh, certainly on weird, uh, shaky ground there. Um, but then, you know, and then he sees uh, Esme and it, he has to follow her. Um, and it's so moving and dramatic. And you're like, oh, is that actually her? 
You know, there's that question for a while. Did he actually see her? And I, I fully thought it wasn't her. I, I was fully convinced that he had just like imagined someone that looked like her, you know? Um, and then it ended up being her. And I, it was definitely surprising in how I had, didn't expect that sort of type of heartwarming. I, I mean, heartwarming, it is heartwarming, but again, it has the dysfunction of their relationship, you know, that like there's immediately drama between them. There's immediately conflict. Um, they immediately are arguing about things and not saying things to each other that they should be saying, but that they don't say because they're broken and sad and thinking, you know, in their own personal ways, they're undeserving of love. Um, and yeah, it's powerful stuff. That was a really wild chapter. In a, in a very like quiet, very character focused mm -hmm. way too, which I really appreciated. You know, not not every fantasy story stops to like mm -hmm. let you know follow the character, deal with their inner demons um, psychosexually, you know, and then follow through with like then the relate. Like it would have been so easy to skip that initial scene with the prostitutes um, or Akamian even just like wandering around and just skip right to him seeing Esmanet. You know that that's. Uh, would be a very common place to like kind of jump in. But Baker really let us like dig into the scene and dig into Camion's psychology in a way that, again, is like kind of disturbing at times, but is extremely compelling um, and certainly shows you a lot of complexity um, and humanity um, <laughs> in ways that, uh, yeah, I just found endlessly compelling. In this section too, I think... It, it's with the quiet, more character moments. I think you, you get the sense that the Holy War is gearing up and people are starting to kind of, you kind of almost like out of control. Like they're this bloodlust and there's all this debauchery going on and things are getting, you could feel things ramping up that something is about to happen. Like it's almost like something that's about to burst. Like everyone is, uh, you know, ready for violence. Like everyone is kind of, they have to let it out somehow. Um, Absolutely. But it, but I did wonder, I wanted to hear all of you, and you, you've already kind of touched on it, but as far as the writing style goes, did you all find that this was uh, more accessible than, or I guess you can say, than the the first book? Because I hear that a lot, that this book is more accessible than the first book. And I wonder, as far as the writing style, I wondered if any of you noticed that, or is it just more of the focus on the characters? And like you said, it almost like slows down and it's not as, there's not as much information being, or as history being thrown at us. It's more, um, just kind of like, um, almost like we taking a break. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's it. I, I, it's, I think it's a combination of, you know, like Mike and I were talking about, we're in book two now, so we have our feet under us. We, we kind of generally understand what's going on. You know, we, we know the factions and the main characters and that sort of thing. Um, and, and I don't think that should be understated. Like that, that is a huge benefit that we didn't have at the start of the darkness that comes before. But also, yeah, it is slower. I mean, the, the darkness that comes before very knowingly um, throws a lot at you. I mean, I remember being shocked about how much happens in part one of that book, um, while this one definitely up until this point has been relatively, uh, I guess, slow paced, but not in a way that I found boring at all. Mm -hmm. It just is very character focused and is like grounding you in uh, the minutia of the Holy War and the, that building emotional tension, like you were saying, Steve. What about you, Marcia? What did you, what did you think? 
I can't say that I noticed that the writing style was any easier. I I would attribute it to being more familiar with the world, like Carl said. I I don't know that the writing style is significantly different, but I'm also not very good at grasping these things. So, um, but it wasn't much that much easier to read. Like I I didn't feel like oh now I can understand everything I didn't before. Um, maybe because the parts that I didn't get or was trying to uh like unfamiliar terms i tend to skip over i'm like it'll come up often enough that i'll start to recognize it so that's just how i read so given that i wasn't bogged down by that it it didn't feel that much um harder to uh, that much easier or harder like it, it felt similar like be, i did like the feeling of familiarity and uh, using the word with a huge pile of salt comfort <laughs> in the world <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i definitely still couldn't tell you the differences between most of the different like what are they western eastern what what are what are, are they norserai king no the norserai are like the far northern kingdoms mm-hmm. but the ones that are on crusade like that we all got you know um that kellis like all the, those people that kellis stopped and i think it was the end of the last book where he stopped and like looked at all of them and was like this is this person's deal. This is this person. Right. I couldn't tell you the difference. I'm like, I remember one of them has shrunken heads on a belt, but like, I I think that's the Tidoni okay. one. Um, but beyond that, I'm like, I that yeah. that that all stuff is all uh, kind of a blur to me still. But the empire stuff, I I or all the different empires, I can kind of follow at this point. Yeah, I I can't say that I can, but just yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, no. <laughs> One thing I will say in the first chapter, I will admit I read it twice because I think I was just thinking I was too comfortable. So there were sec- there was a lot of exposition. <laughs> there was a lot of exposition in the first in the first chapter where basically Kellis is spilling the beans about everything he knows. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not Kellis. Um, Akamian is telling Kellis like everything about the consult, and he was just like. He was just coming out of him because of, I guess, Kellis's abilities to coax anything out of people. Um, and so we learn about more about the No God. We learn about dragons. There's a dragon that appears mm-hmm. in the dreams, which I, I think, Barsha, wasn't you that said you, you were hoping there would be more dragons, or somebody said that. Uh, maybe it was uh, maybe it was all of us. Um, we learned about this like, <laughs> this this weapon, the heron spear. I mean, I just kind of I was like, I got to reread this. This is a lot of stuff happening, um, and and then kind of learn. And so I just that that part was to me took took a while to absorb. Um, I don't know how much I need to know about all of that, but it was a lot in in one go and but then the rest of the other three or four chapters to me were you know much more smooth sailing um but i feel very confident the heron sphere will come back oh yeah <laughs> and there, the, i have a couple reasons for thinking that one is just like on a like a basic narrative thing like you don't introduce something like the heron sphere and then not pay it off later on like that that's just something that like it's planted early on that's going to come up again there's a historical reason i believe it too um which I, I'd be interested to discuss with y'all um, just a little bit of the h- historical parallels here. Cause there were some. Um, yes. Tell us. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to get into the spear too much because 
uh, I'm going to wait until it comes back. I do feel confident it will come back. I mean, I don't know that for certain, but um, the uh, Asgiliok, which is an awesome name, um, is definitely Antioch. Uh, I, I mean, I, I just assumed because that was like the first big victory for the uh, like Western Frankish Crusaders in the Holy War, uh, the First Crusade. And what shocked me about this one, though, was Antioch is a huge, like, turning point in the First Crusade. Because it's one showing, oh, we can do this, you know, like, we we can take Jerusalem. Like, it gets everyone really fired up. And Asgiliok kind of functions similarly. But it was also really hard fought and hard won. And... Uh, it, it's a very significant turning point. People like one of the leading princes ends up like deciding, all right, I'm in charge of here now. I'm done. My war is over. The rest of you go on. And I don't know that that won't, we won't find out something like that has happened, but um, it, it didn't play out exactly like I expected. Although I, maybe I'm misreading things, you know, but certainly with a name like Asgiliok versus Antioch, uh, I, I was sort of uh, latching on to that um, as, a, as a possible parallel. Um, we'll see. Um, but that, that was something I definitely kind of noticed and was curious about. Like the battle, the siege was sort of brushed over. Like we, we didn't even really cover it. It was just like, oh, yeah, and then they were, we have Asgiliok now, you know, and a lot of people are dead and, and things like that. Um, and really folk, I mean, I probably from a narrative perspective, uh, importantly focused, you know, on the, on the characters and their emotional relationships, um, which definitely these, these hundred pages, you know, we talked about, um, Akamian and Esmanet a lot, but uh, Akamian and Kellis, and then even Esmanet and Kellis were definitely, uh, other very central relationships in this section, um, that I found very compelling. What did you think of Esmanet and Akamian's reunion, Steve? It, 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 it's, uh, I think you all kind of mentioned that it's the, the two people who, who don't know, who can't seem to get it right. Um, it, it was a, a heartwarming moment. It's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be really careful what I say to not uh, spoil anything, but it, it does strike me that for as, is, you know, like up and down and as, as much time as they spend apart that a commune feels comfortable telling Esmanet about the consult. And she reciprocates that by saying, you know, we have to keep this secret. Like it's, um, so they have become like a unit and they, they've have this deep trust in each other that, and they just speaks to their, to the, the way that they feel about each other, even if they go about it in very, uh, strange ways. Mm -hmm. one, uh, one thing that I I'm, maybe I misremembered this but I, I think there's a section where they have this the two of them have this long conversation but then we learn that something is uh, is listening in because I the whole oh, time yeah. I kept thinking yeah. um, because of Esmanet's history with this Sarcellus character from book one that either she is there's you know she's been 
she's she's going to be continued to be monitored. Of course, we see Sarcellus comes back up, but um, to me, I just kept questioning, like, okay, we know that the consult is trying to track down the commune, so it, to me, there's no way that this them just coming together is not being monitored by whomever the the consult, uh, you know, the, a skin spy or whatever character it could be, because there's so many. There's so many possibilities now of people, you know, hiding their face or whatever, or um, being, you know, I, I, is, that, is that the right word, skin spy? Anyway, <laughs> I remember that being used. <laughs> um, and we learned, if I'm not mistaken, that that's not magic, that that's, which I really kind of threw me that they said it. it's like, um, I, I, I'm not quite sure what it is, techne or something. Uh, they call it the old science. Old science. I, I, I definitely, right. I mean, I don't know if it actually is a science or not. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely just interpret it as magic, oh, but okay. maybe, yeah, they do call it the old science. You're right about that. Yeah. That was wild. I mean, that was, I think that was also maybe yeah. mentioned in chapter one, just a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. new, just, I, I think Baker just throws a lot of different things at you. I, and I, I really like that. You know, it's like, you don't really, any, any number of things could be happening. It's not just the, I feel it's not just the story at face value. Mm. What, uh, just a quick thing while, before we move on from a came in I just wanted to comment on was a, a thing that occurred to me as I was reading this is uh, part of what's so interesting, just from like, a, I guess, like an intellectual literary perspective. And like, I, it's, I think it is one of the things that like ties them together too emotionally um, is that, you know, these are, these are two people whose careers are like wearing masks and dealing in information, right? You know, Kamin's a spy and Esmanet is a prostitute. And so they're both used to like playing pretend. And it's only around each other that kind of those masks start to come off. But even then, never all the way, right? Um, they, that That's part of the, you know, as comfortable as they feel around each other, there is still those walls. They, they still can't help but, you know, play the, the whore and the spy a bit. Um, and, you know, I think that's probably where kind of the seed of the tragedy of their relationship is they can't shake their vocations, almost like define who they are as individuals too. And in a very tragic way, um, in a way that like, I don't think, you know, if you look at all the characters, I do think Kellis in severing himself from the darkness that comes before is the one least tied to his, I guess you could say like what he does, you know, like any sort of career, like he's, he's the most flexible, malleable um, in that regard. Like, even though his like, his will is very strong and he clearly has distinct like motivations, things he's pursuing. He isn't so defined by what he does and what has been done to him. Um, And I, I think that, I don't know, it was just an interesting thing I was thinking about while reading this section. I I really like how you put that. I, I think it defines them and it also defines, I guess, what's flawed about the relationship, what you said. The, uh, like, Akamian can't get over the fact that she, um, she has to sleep with other people as part of her job. And even when she stopped, he's torturing himself by reminding himself of all the people she may have slept with in the past. And right. 
and same with her i, I mean I, we're not seeing the cracks yet but i feel like his constant weeping is going to come by their relationship in the back you know <laughs> uh, it every time we saw a kamian he was miserable and weeping um understandably so but you know asmanet is a person of action i think and she she takes decisions and akamian doesn't he just wallows in his indecision and i think that's going to hurt them and that's not necessarily because he's a spy uh but you know his fundamental uh characteristic <laughs> whatever it is that's driving him he it's going to hurt their relationship i think he's definitely more of an observer than an actor um you know he definitely is is often not even so reactive as he is just like yeah i mean we know he's a historian we know he chronicles and that almost feels like his role in all of this um yeah. you know he's almost that like wizard mentor um in a, in a strange way where like he he's not actively like driving the story uh as important as he is to it and as much as like time we spend with his pov um he's very much not someone who you know like kellis is a force of nature like even when people don't know it kellis is like driving their actions and moving things forward towards his own ends um and that when he chooses not to act as we see him do here to not reveal the uh sarcellus which right. crazy tense scene when sarcellus showed up or i i was i was so stressed and unhappy for esmet uh, i mean you talked about like again we know that if akamian found out he would react poorly like that's one of those things where like i don't blame her for keeping that mm -hmm. a secret because like even disregarding the fact that he's consul which would just eat akamian alive even more like you know he would react poorly to finding out about that cuz he treats her so poorly about as you said sleeping with other people for her job um which it clearly goes beyond a job because she did it you know again it's like formed part of her identity as we saw in the darkness that comes before um but yeah even when kellis is like deciding not to act it is a very distinct decision he doesn't dither you know he makes a decision and then he like commits to it and acts accordingly as opposed to akamian who just lingers in misery and indecision is caught you know in his darkness that comes before beyond even just like the the emotions and that's like psychological sort of almost theological concept he he the memories that he lives with are almost you know another darkness that comes before that drives him and that shapes him where like he how much of his will is his own you know when he's living someone else's memories every night um and these horrible memories right i mean he doesn't even like he speaks in the first person as if he is uh sir uh what's what's the guy's name the say wizard's Shwata. name yeah say swatha mm -hmm. uh like it there's clearly a merging right. there um that fundamentally impacts who he is and and how he approaches things there's moments which oh so sorry I'm sorry go ahead no i was going to say go ahead, there's man. moments when he says i've been here before or you know when he's walking around yeah, yeah. um i forget maybe it's as giliak um i i really for some reason i, I really appreciate that it remind um but also one thing i will mention is from, we learn what um, Skeos called uh, Akamian, which was Chigra, mm. is the Srank word for Saswata. 
I noted that down. Mm. So that's fascinating that they use the Srank language. I don't know. This is just stuff that I was just yeah. like, what is this? This is just nuts. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I mm. just, uh, it didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, Marsha. Go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I actually noticed that um, because of the question you asked on the forum about Chigra. I, I, that completely went over my head. I didn't, I didn't even notice the Chigra bit last time. <laughs> Sounds almost like an insult, no? Um, I don't know if it's his name or if that's what they call him in Shrank. But um, what was I going to say? Uh, what was Carl talking about earlier? Uh, I forgot. Uh, <laughs> I jumped around a lot. The scene with Sarcellus. Achilles oh, yeah. is a, a, a willful actor versus Achamian who dithers. Achamian is influenced, and you know, like how much of Achamian's will is his own when he's living someone else's memories. That's mm. like his, oh, his yeah. additional darkness that comes before. That one, the the bit about other people's memories. I kind of wish we got another mandate schoolman perspective, although like it's it's just more for you know experiment sake than anything else. It how how does this because. Yes, Akemian's been affected by the dreams he has a lot. And, and perhaps it's so much more intense because he's the one who discovered the consult. He's the one who uh, got to meet uh, Anna Surimbor for the first time again. And so he has to, he's the messenger of all the bad news <laughs> that the world ever wants to deal with. Um, so maybe it's affecting him a lot more. But is there such a thing as a non-normal school man like how does how do any of them ever get out of bed and make decisions you know like what um <laughs> what Akamian was saying about the rest of the schoolmen that if they ever find out about Kellis they're going to uh imprison him or whatever do what uh okay I won't spoil other series over this but uh like the thing that you expect them to right? like just capture him and uh I don't know cut him open I guess but um yeah it, it's interesting I guess just for curiosity's sake I would like to see another perspective but if for Akamian at least I believe it's a crippling thing to have the dreams that he's subjected to constantly do you think I, I... Oh, sorry go ahead go ahead Oh, just just going off what you were saying, I think the dithering, the inability to make a decision, other than you know deciding to put off making a decision, uh, <laughs> is to me. I certainly read it as very much symptomatic of who he is as a mm. person. Like it came, like even separate from the memories. Um, you know, you think about his relationship with Esmanet, and that's how it functioned. Like they, it, it very much he could never pursue her like properly because he just kept getting anxious and neurotic about it, which, which is something I can totally relate to. <laughs> but like at a certain point, you know, you have to make a decision and, and he seems like he, I mean, I don't think foundationally fundamentally is incapable of it, but certainly he does not do it very often. Um, at the same time, I do think, where you would see the parallel this is just my theorizing like i i don't know for certain i'm i'm with you that i would love to see more uh in the heads of the other mandate schoolmen um beyond the little bit we got at the beginning of book one um is that i i imagine they all would be doing a lot of crying because i imagine that does come from siswatha as much as it is their own personal experiences because like when you have you think of him and like in all these memories he's crying because mm -hmm. everything he loves and knows around him is dying and so suddenly you're finding out 
it's, you know, it isn't over, it's here again. It's like, you're going to have that PTSD response of like, you're going to break down. Hmm. Um, and so I, I, I can certainly imagine that they would react very strongly to this news in a very similar way. Hmm. Do I think that they would fail to make decisions like Akamian does? No, I, I imagine particularly the people at the top probably are more experienced at, you know, I mean, Akamian was in a leader. He was never been a leader. You know, he's a teacher and a spy. Um, and I think that's what he's good at is like teaching people and learning things and, and gaining and sharing knowledge um, as opposed to, you know, I, I can't remember their names, but whoever the, the head schoolmen are who like, I imagine, you know, whether they decide to arrest Kellis or not or whatever would make a decision and wouldn't, you know, dither over it in, endlessly. Yeah. I, I imagine they're probably similar in character to the head of the Scarlet Spires, whose name escapes me at the moment, but um, similarly feeling in charge of everything. Um, but I guess we're almost about ready to move on from Esmanet and Akamian. I just want to say one more thing. Did you guys read the summary at the beginning of the book, of book one? I read parts of it. I read... So there was... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, I was going to say I read most of it. Yeah. Okay. So we were talking last time about um, why Callus would be interested in Servi, Servo. Um, and I think we kind of got the answer in the summary uh, that it, he's basically trying to get to Nayur through her, which you know, I, I should have seen, but I did not. Um, but also, I think... <laughs> We probably knew this anyway, but that sort of confirms that, sure, there are cracks in Akamian's and Esmanet's relationship, which they've sort of fallen into a pattern of smoothing over, I guess, whenever they can. But Kellis is going to dig those holes deeper, right? He's, he's going to expand them, make bigger. Um, yeah, I'm kind of terrified of where that's going to go, what adding the Kellis variable to their relationship is going to do. That... Absolutely. I have no doubt Kellis is going to lie at the center of the downfall of their relationship. That just seems dramatically like exactly the, the it's the most dramatic place for it to go. So I think it makes perfect sense. Um, I, I loved, you know, I, I was definitely someone who was, you know, I, I complained a little in our previous uh, meetings about how like everyone fell in love with Kellis so fast. And like, it was nice to see Esmanet put up a bit more of a fight. And like, even before, like here, I think what I really appreciate, like she certainly still, like he played her um, and is certainly winning her over and I'm sure will win her over more. But um, particularly before she met him, it was nice having someone else be like, his story's kind of sus, right? <laughs> like this is, this is weird. Like why, 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 you shouldn't trust him. What's going on here? Like this, the pieces aren't fitting together here. It was so nice to hear it, but it came in and was like, no, but you don't understand. He's just so cool. Like, yeah, it came in and has that doubt. He's like, this, I don't know if I should like this guy. I just really like this guy though. You know, like, no one makes me feel this way. Um, like, it, 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 oh, anyway. I think there's loved uh, it. Loved it. There's some foreshadowing in here. I think I don't remember where, maybe second or third chapter. At some point, I think Akamian says something like, "He's as power. He's as powerful as so and so. If he, if he, we could teach him sorcery, he could be another 
Siswatha, and I was Sishwatha. yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's probably not such a a Genesis was a Genesis, yeah. The person he was probably not such a great like, idea. It was like a philosopher, <laughs> you know. I, I was like, yeah. exactly I'm not so sure about like... that. Sishwatha, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, while he was a sorcerer planted dreams in all of his followers <laughs> <laughs> that traumatizing dreams uh but you don't want that kind of power <laughs> it does open the question right is like what does it take to stop something like the consult right you know mm -hmm. like seswatha and the mandate thought that this was necessary as horrible as it is and as much as it like torments people for countless generation generations like you know what does it take to stop that sort of uh primal evil mm. um you know this this insanely powerful i mean they know things no one else does the the old science right like what what's going on there we don't know um and, and i think you know that's the, certainly the question is like is someone like kellis necessary to stop that mm. force um and we'll see you know what we'll see what what will he and the others become you know to stop it and and that, it, there's also a part in there that I want to mention too, where um, I think I've, it must have been towards the end of this section, um, where I believe Kellis knows a, he knows something about the the prophecy, but then he's like, "Well, I don't believe that." There's certain things that he he doesn't believe. I, I think it, maybe it's that um, he is going to be the downfall, or. I don't know what, but then I, I, I don't trust anything that he says. There is a, I mean, but the point <laughs> I wanted to, to note really um, about that is I think that he's starting to doubt himself um, a little bit. I think it's on, mm -hmm. I did find it. It's on page 90 where um, he starts to say something like, um, despite his initial skepticism, Kellis had believed about much of what Akamian had claimed. He believed the stories of the first apocalypse, but not the Kelmomian prophecy. Um, he, he, he said, this is a part where, to me, is really important, where they say, could what come after uh, couldn't be what come before. So he, he's like starting to question his own, you know, um, mm. Dunyane philosophy. I don't know. Maybe it's not significant, uh, but I, I found it to be like this is such an important um, component of maybe the philosophy in this book that everything is supposedly you know you know preordained or de determinism or what have you. But um, to me, that that seemed to be like we're starting to see some some moments where he's starting to question himself. Anyway. I don't know what others. What no, others it's, it, of that. it is yeah. interesting that he has. I mean, because if you remember, he didn't know magic existed. Right. Like he didn't believe it existed until he saw it. Um, and so having he has this like pure rational sort of logic. Uh, in some ways, like. I mean, I, I, I almost want to compare it to like modern viewpoints, but even most people aren't so like extreme as he is. Um, and now he's being confronted with the realities of like this fantasy world that like not only is magic real, but prophecy may be real. And, you know, what does that mean? You know, if the past in the past, they foretold the future and the future is foretold. And like, you know, what does that mean? Because, because in a way that seems to like 
fundamentally undercut, like you were saying, Mike, their philosophy. Like, mm -hmm. how do you predict the future? You know, you're supposed to have this will over yourself. And it's like, how can you ever truly have will, like this control over yourself and cut out the darkness that comes before if the future's already, you know, been predicted? You know, if everything is determined, uh, it's, it is certainly very interesting to see that and to see him doubt and, and learn. That's a good observation, though. I didn't, I didn't even catch that. Because um, that is one of the, is that the first time that he's, we've even had like a hint of doubt from Callus? He seems so sure of himself and so confident. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned Carl. It, it might have come earlier where he was like, "Oh, there's well, I didn't know about magic or you know, or sorcery or whatever." That might have actually come in the first book. But um, to me, I, one of the things that I took away from the first book that I'm makes me not be able to really decide what rating or whatever I would give the, you know the first book is I really want to see how this plays out. Um. You know, going back to the whole, and I and I've actually heard other people talk about this as well. Um, so this isn't necessarily an original thought, but um, like I think I I tuned into Philip Chase's channel. He was talking about this book, and so this you know this concept of free will. If there's no free will, is that what Baker is saying, or is it that you know that was the kind of thing that I kept wondering? Like, is that what is going to be such an important theme throughout the book. I, I'm, I'm hoping that um, we, I'm, well, I know that there is kind of, this very bleak and it's not a lot of hope, hope going on here, which doesn't bother me as much as others maybe, but um, I, I am, I continue to wonder about where this is going with this character and this theme. So um, I guess maybe I'm reading into these things because I am hoping that, no. Um, you know, that potentially, you know, there is this, you know, not every, we do have free will, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's definitely been explored, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm with you that like, we'll see how, how it all plays out. And if there is a conclusion one way or another, or if Baker leaves it open-ended, but uh, that's definitely, I think, is a, is a fundamental aspect. I mean, I think it really has to be when you're talking about things like prophecies and precognition and, you know, anything like that and predicting human behavior is like you have to, the darkness that comes before itself is like in a way talking about, you know, human behavior being predictable and almost following like a path, you know, set for it, um, you know, through no uh, self-control and self-will and that you have to like break away from it to have any. Um, and now Kellis is being confronted with the fact that, well, maybe that's not even enough. Right. Um, so I definitely think it's being explored and it, it's, that's one that personally I'm very partial to. I love it. I love it in Dune. I love it. You know, just in general, I love it when, you know, asking questions of free will and like, what even is free will? How do you determine if you have it? You know, things like that. I, and I think it's, it's very interesting the, the perspectives we're seeing on it here. Yeah, I, I suddenly don't, I, I agree that that's being explored and I love it. I'm with you, Carl. And I, I uh, love the exploration of those questions. I feel like the character Kellis, it, so here's the thing. I, I don't know how you might conclude from anything in the first book that Baker is saying there's no free will. Uh, because mm. the character... 
callous <laughs> potentially thinks that there's no free will but he has free will, <laughs> right at least he is free to act based on something and the others are apparently making decisions based on uh various aspects like history and i, I don't know why i remember history more than the other things but many um parts of their personality and kelis is basically learning to wipe all of those out so that he can manipulate them but he's acting like it, and it's not that he's got some special abilities that only uh, or that he's not human and the others are and that's why mm-hmm. he has free will anyone can train to be dunian they were bred to have certain characteristics but it sounds like it's a sort of meditation philosophy or principle that you apply and you can maybe get pathway there so yeah i i watched that that discussion too and i didn't feel like there was enough mm-hmm. in the first book to conclude one way or the other i sure the question was being explored because uh kelis is doing like statistical analysis in the <laughs> prologue and uh determining what the behavior might be and then he's going on about how many variables there are later on which you know you could say <laughs> it's like a uh, single variable calculus and like whatever the but the point <laughs> is um sure. The point is I don't like if that's Baker's point I don't feel like he did a good job of making it right. in the first book and I don't even think that that's his point. I mean it's only book 1 like I feel like <laughs> very few stories that are long form make their point in one book, you know. Mm-hmm. If anything I feel like what he did in book 1 was ask a lot of questions and is now exploring those questions. Right. You know, and elaborating on them. I mean again because Kellis seemingly is the definition of free will in a sense and that's why he's so shaken by this idea of prophecy because it's like that means fundamentally the way he views the world is is incomplete mm-hmm. and maybe wrong and, you know mm-hmm. maybe free will as he views it doesn't exist mm-hmm. and uh it, it's very compelling mm-hmm. you know i mean i think in many ways we go to fiction to, to sort of help ourselves process things and um you know i think we all in life find our personal philosophies and experiences and things like that challenged and so we like to see that reflected in stories and and you know that's what's happening here uh for all the characters and certainly um not you know Kellis not least among them now um although perhaps more often than not he is sort of imposing his philosophy upon the rest of them yeah uh, even if they are not necessarily aware of it <laughs> yeah Uh, I was going to say something. Yeah, and that was one of the reasons why I was drawn to the series, right? Because I know Baker is a philosopher and the, the question of free will is very fundamental to studies in philosophy as far as I know, and not that I have studied a lot of philosophy myself. But I was very curious to see how you might exp- it has to be an exploration, right? Unless Baker himself strongly believes one way or the other about determinism and free will. Mm-hmm. it has to necessarily be an exploration of what if this were the case or what if and kelis um is representing a character with free will the others but but it's it's down to people then isn't it it's not that the world as a whole has this like you know the starting point you can predict everything about the end because even in the analysis that kelis does which by the way reminded me a lot of like atreides uh, paul's uh 
what what were they called not crying i don't know they they were called something vaccines <laughs> yeah uh and yeah. when he's calculating all the paths that something could take it could still there are a lot of variables and that's true even if you have free will right there are many decisions that people can make maybe to think that they are finite is flawed and that's probably <laughs> what's wrong in kelis's philosophy or principles well i i think it it again is still a question uh of whether kelis is even imposing mm. whether he has free will because because i i i mean i think sort of the i i brief like i i took a class on this so, so like the the whole idea of like determinism and like the the sort of scientific philosophical uh, philosophical theory is that like all time exists at the same time like if you think of it almost like any given long shape right and so that like if you're here the future already exists you're just not there yet and that um any given time like you may think it's this illusion that you're making decisions but mm-hmm. that what is going to happen and what has happened was always the case because all time exists at the same time and it's only our human perspective our limited you know three-dimensional perspective that makes it seem as if we have free will and i and i think that that is what kellis is now grappling with is this idea that well if you can know the future then that mm-hmm. means the future has happened is happened will happen that it exists and so now he's having to grapple the fact okay i thought i freed myself by cutting myself off from the darkness that comes before but if the, all the things i'm going to do are destined to happen then i'm not really free at all right um and i and, and i don't know like no. we don't know right we i think know. this is being continuing to be explored right and i and i think it's interesting um but certainly kellis is a, a strong proponent and and certainly like anyone like you know like you mike like i would like to believe i have free will um you know and what's the difference right like how do you define it what's the difference between like the the illusion itself and the reality mm-hmm. right like if you if as far as you're aware you're exercising free will and making decisions you know certainly you could make decisions one way or another so is that free will you know versus like whether that decision was always going to happen and you're just not aware of it like you know how do you define it how do you define free will um i think it's ex- i don't know yeah. this stuff like, i love this stuff but but i also think it's explored in the various characters as well so if you look at the women characters as we've said many times they have no agency um you know some of these characters that are maybe through what well, we know that there's cast in here we know that you know people are round upon for whatever their livelihood may be sometimes or what their culture is so depending on where you are in the society also i think helps determine you know your level um of of power and agency and i guess free will the one thing i wanted to say that i i kept thinking about too sorry it doesn't really come up in this section that much as i keep thinking that kellis has been in a laboratory you know like being in that in the in the um, dunian world right so everything that maybe works extremely well in his conditioning and and the selective breeding etc you know work can work well in in the wild you know in the real world but it's not going to be perfect and that's what i think you know we're seeing a little bit of you know here not you know anyway but i just keep that's thinking so cool. that because i that it's a little bit in, related yeah. to some of the work that I do for a living is, 
you know, we, we see things that work well in experimental conditions, right? And then people say, well, this is the, the greatest new thing and we're going to, this comes in, 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 in business and technology and it's, we try to scale it up and, you know, whatever, uh, it, maybe it's make the most profit or it's whatever, but uh, it doesn't always happen sometimes, uh, you know, in these, in these small finite conditions. Anyway, I kept thinking about that. That's a really cool insight. You're totally right. It's that controlled environment, yeah. right? It is. It's like an experiment. He's like, he grew up in a laboratory and now he's like having to see if all of the, the hypotheses, you know, that were proposed and seemingly proven true in his little control group is mm-hmm. now like, it does it still ring true once you're exposed to the chaos of the wider world. That's really cool. Wow. Yeah, you're totally right. That has to be intentional too, Baker, that isolated like, uber rationalist like wow yeah so does anyone else have any thoughts about this because otherwise there's something i i have been dying to talk about just want to mention one thing really quickly because we did uh, mike you brought up the what comes before uh there as we get into later books not so much on this one but as we get into later books there are revelations there are um history and it adds a little bit every time as the books progress. So there is like little nice little tidbits buried in them sometimes. So just a heads up. Very cool. Talking about like the dreams in particular, Steve, like the past, like the past, the first apocalypse stuff, or or are you you also just meaning like generally? Uh, Most of the, the history, there's little tidbits of history from the first apocalypse and other events and items from the past are mentioned. Hell yeah. Um, so the thing I wanted to talk about, uh, I don't know what page it is. I really should, especially for this book group, but (laughs) they talk about aliens. You guys caught that? That was, that was crazy. (laughs) What? Yes. Who, who Inkoroi? Uh, I don't remember them, but Uh, someone told the Inkoroi that, they came from this. They were talking about stars. Yeah. Wait, is that this? That's how it started. As when that was all like the classic medieval, like, you know, oh, the sun rotates around the earth sort of thing. And Akamian was like, well, actually the non-men think that it's the other way around and that like space is a void with lots of stars and, you know, untold and the Inkeroi came. And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, whoa, hold up there. Like, what? Who are these people? Like, we've definitely heard that word before, but not like, who are these people? They're aliens? What? (laughs) Like, like, this is crazy. Uh, That, yeah, that was, that was a hell of a ball, you know, to drop right there. That was, Just casually throw that in there. Hmm. Yeah. I I just, I, I I think I missed that. (laughs) I remember reading that part. It's crazy. That, that's like, it's literally what, the, I mean, who knows if it's true or not, but that is a hell of a thing to throw in there that like the non-men just like casually believe that aliens came and, and like brought something. They, was it, was it the knowledge that space is a void? Hmm. I think maybe that's what yeah. it was. Um, but yeah, it was like straight up, like these people are aliens. I mean, again, who knows if it's true or not, but like, that's what the non-men supposedly believe according to a Kamian. Supposedly, that's what the Inkeroi told them, that they sailed here from the stars that were, from stars that were suns. There you go. 
That would How do you spell it. that? Because I yeah. want to look it up. Uh, I'll, I'll type it here. Okay. In the chat. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so if I can figure out how to get that. Why can't I? Oh, add a destination to post. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. It's I N C H O R O I. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. There's but, just a lot of stuff. Yeah. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I love the conversation about the stars and what Esmeralda yeah. thinks to herself about the stars. It's all very pretty. I have a random question yes. similar where mm. I think, uh, so we learn that this, is it like a castle or a, a town or temple that gets destroyed? But it's never really explained. They could think it's an earthquake, but I didn't really think it was. I thought Kellis might have thrown a rock or something or uh, or it was the consult coming, or but it, it was referred to a few times. The city is called Ruom, um, mm. but I kept I I just wrote that down. Was it was it was it caused by something else? Because right, that's like mm. in the first chapter we hear about all of the destruction um, that that you know I think that that happens. Um, so I was just wondering, is like, is this, a, is there going to be signs of the, you know, it, but maybe I read into that one way too much. <laughs> no, that's a good point. I, I didn't, I didn't think much of it, but that, that makes sense. Uh, Which uh, I, I, I like remember this, this, this is like ringing bells, but I don't remember the details. Okay. Um, what what page like what where where so, is it if you have it marked and I, I think I, I think it's at the beginning of chapter three. three. Um, okay, I I think it's so fun seeing I and mean, what everyone latches on to. Mm. I mean, <laughs> aliens for me, I was like, oh, <laughs> it's uh, it, like they say, interesting. Oh, it survived the dragons and it survived the kings and it just collapsed. So I was just like. I just found that interesting. Found that to be interesting, and then they go. Then they go to another kind of temple, and we see um, the he's the the prophet um, Sejanus. His arms are outstretched, very similar to, I guess, Jesus. Um, and then I, yeah. Anyway, yeah. just uh, I don't know if that's significant. I think it's going to maybe keep coming up because we. Um, but I, I, I do feel like I might have read into that. Mm. Oh, yeah. This was when they took Asgiliok, right? Mm. This was the big citadel in Asgiliok. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you you had said, Carl, that they kind of just skipped over the battle. Like, I, I, I might have even missed that. Because <laughs> the battle is yeah, going on, but we're not seeing it. Like, we're... Not, like we're... That, that's it right there is like that. It was like we suddenly cut from like the, I don't think they were at Asgiliok at the end of chapter two and then chapter three right. opens and it's like they've taken Asgiliok. And I was like, whoa, okay. like, yeah, like that was a, a seemingly, I mean, again, partially just because I, I bring my own, you know, assumptions, um, right? Like I, I heard Asgiliok and I, I went, okay, that's Antioch that's a huge turning point in the first crusade. So that's going to be a really big deal. And then it's just like, Oh no, they have it now. Um, it was interesting. Yeah. I think there is something very poetic too, to the story of Ruom, right. That like, it is this citadel that like stood the test of time, but fell to just a bunch of, you know, 
the outside, you know, the, the people living there would call them heathens probably. Right. You know, these people who just showed up and tore it all down and in their fear. Right. Is it, is it Rome? We keep seeing him changing letters oh. around. Um, probably not, but um, I know I learned what Inri refers to, um, <laughs> which maybe we, um, that's the Jesus Nazarenus Rex Ludeorum, I-N-R-I, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Uh, In, the Enrithi. Oh. All these things, the etymolo- etymological origins, like Baker doesn't mess around. <laughs> so Janus, it's all very intentional. Just change a few letters around. Um, yeah. I don't know if I it, like that I, as much. I, know, I don't know. Some, for some reason, I want it to be a little bit, I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I would like the words to be more. No, I was actually going to. Yeah. It kind of bugs me a little bit. I was actually going to ask how everyone feels about that. I I'm with you, Mike. I'm not. I'm not sure. I like the one-to-one parallelism with the real world, which you know, it's a choice, and I and no, I don't like the book more or less because of it. But I, I kind of wish it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I don't mind it because I don't think it's one-to-one, right? Like there, there's clearly the etymological influence, and like you know, you you talk about enrithism, and like that's clearly a Christianity stand-in but the philosophies are also different mm. and like what they believe in, like how things are structured are different. Right. I mean, down to the fact that it's polytheistic, you know, uh, which fundamentally changes like different sort sort of, you know, re- religions like that, like uh, have different philosophical undercurrents and like kind of the structures mm. that they imply um, and the, the philosophies tied into that, you know, and, and the cultural attitudes, you know, I, I, I find it different enough that it doesn't bother okay. me um, mm. on but, but that's just me. I mean, that's just my perspective. I also maybe, you know, trained because of Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, where it's all, you know, Eddard is Edward, right? right? Like all the <laughs> names, you know, we, we literally just also just have Robert as just, that's, that's a name, you know? Um, so I, I don't know. I'm not too, I think you would do it better and worse than others. Uh, this one has been, for me at least, in my knowledge of linguistics and all that like is subtle enough like it's not you know uh like jesus is the like you know a holy figure prophet like uh if it was a little more on the nose i think i would struggle with it but like the uh sejanus i i don't know i guess that that, again that's just me Mm -hmm. um yeah what about you steve I don't mind it too much. I think uh, if it's too on the nose, I think it, it would bother me more, but it, it is different enough. And it, mm. for me, it kind of opens up different possibilities of um, where or when this is all happening and the parallels to our world. So I think you can kind of play with that a little bit too of, um, is this something in the future? Is this happening in the, in the future? And there's still remnants of uh, other religions. And so I think it's kind of fun to, to play with. And I think in a way it kind of helps me keep track of things and it kind of like little Easter eggs, like, Oh, that's this. And this is that. And, but if it's too, if it's too close, if it's too on the nose and it becomes, um, I don't want to say lazy, but it just becomes like, okay, well, we've seen this yeah. before, but as long as there's that distance enough to where you can, um, have different possibilities to go with, go with it. And, um, 
Yeah. So, but it, no, I, I can see why it would be not, a, not, I can see why not everyone is a fan. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I guess for me, it's more of a, are you trying to say something about this group of people or whoever you're referring to that I'm not getting or, uh, or that I don't necessarily agree with, but you know, if the parallels, there is a parallel and you seem to be making a point about some of this, maybe whenever there is a point being made. I'm like, do I like, it forces me to think about whether I agree about that opinion about the real world parallel, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I don't want to. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. yeah. I, I think for me, it would be hard to not draw some parallels as a storyteller, if you're intentionally basing a story off the first crusade, mm -hmm. like I think there's enough distance in that this is a fantasy world and that, you know, whether or not it is far future earth or, or whatever, right? Like it's it, there, there is that distance. Um, at least for me, it mm -hmm. feels distant enough that I don't feel like it is necessarily casting, you know, it certainly has a point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the point of view is very cynical. Yeah. Um, but it, it's yeah. not, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's derogatory, I guess you yeah. could say. Um, but again, I think like, I just don't know how you could write a story that's at all supposed to be in conversation with the first crusade or any of the crusades and not draw those distinct parallels. And, and again, I'm actually shocked as someone who like knows the history, I, I'm not like an expert, you know, scholar or anything, but like that there haven't been more. And I mean, Kellis is really the wrench thrown in there in the schools where like there is no histor uh, historical mm -hmm. parallel there. Uh, I have no idea how all that's going to play in, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally ignorant to a lot of the history and learning from you, Carl. And, uh, and I, I'm considering mm -hmm. reading more about the Crusades. Um, I think one of the things is, uh, well, not, not to, not to uh, beat this to hell, but, uh, you know, um, I, I guess I'm not, I, one thing that, it, as you mentioned, you know, it doesn't seem like the, the actual religious aspects are taken very seriously at all. Um, I'm, I, I think it's kind of in the background. Um, so maybe it's mm -hmm. not a big deal, you know? Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't, I guess I don't mind that there's a lot of parallels because I don't, I'm still trying to figure out um, what this book is saying to me, maybe not necessarily what the author is saying, because it's maybe different to me, because that certainly happens to everybody. Um, uh, <laughs> not just the book, but the series. Sorry, you made a good point earlier that it's going to take a while to get somewhere. Um, and uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's such a big deal. Um, I, I wish I knew more. I, I, I actually wonder, Carl, if you could recommend <laughs> if you if there's any good books maybe to recommend at some I, point. You'd have to do well, it now at the top of your head, but uh, uh, yeah, I would I would need to make sure I get all the names okay. right. Um, but I, I definitely do. Um, I was very lucky that I studied under one of the big crusader scholars in the UK, hmm. um, who actually has like one of the best books on it. So that, that, that would be one I could definitely recommend. That's like, it's readable too. It's not like really uber dry. Um, and there's some like popular history books too that I think are well-written. Okay. Cool. 
teach you a lot. So there's that. It's a very, I find it a very interesting time and certainly one that I think is uh, a compelling choice to pick to base on a fantasy novel just because there are a lot of very colorful figures and it's very complex. Like I think the narratives that are generally told and taught are not only far from the realities of what the crusades were actually like and about, but they, they whitewash things on like, you could talk either side, you know, there, there are people that want to make like heroes and villains and it's not that simple. I mean, it's like history. It's a history of a religious war. And like, if you're being honest, you know, atrocities are committed all around. I, that's what, you know, these books I respect, like where it's like not whitewashing the fact that like horrible, these people are doing horrible things or are complicit in these horrible acts. And like, that's war, you know, let yeah, alone yes. a holy war. It's, yeah, sad to say it's happening right now in present day in many parts of the world too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's the story, you know, history repeating itself, right? It is. It's very sad. Well, pulling back around, where are we going off of aliens? Are we going off? <laughs> so does we don't, we don't have to springboard off of aliens. <laughs> <laughs> No, but or no, we uh, talked about Rome after that. What what else? Oh, th that was one thing I wanted to talk about was the the quote at the beginning. I remember stood out to me as the the well, there are a couple great epigraphs here yes. um, at the start of chapter three. Uh, the proposition "I'm the sinner" need never be uttered is the assumption upon which all certainty and all doubt turns from Agensis, uh, which is interesting, and we can definitely talk about. It. And also ties into the whole sun theory, right? And the idea, you know that things orbit around the earth or Irwa, as it were. And then the other one, again, just leans into how freaking cynical the series <laughs> is that you have this Ainoni proverb, which it also tells you a lot about the Ainoni as people see your enemies content and your lover's melancholy. And there's a lot that is understated there. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of implication uh, and not a lot of it is very good uh, in my reading of it, at least. I uh, at first I thought it was a curse, <laughs> and then I'm like, no, it's a proverb. What? Wh why is this a proverb? <laughs> it it sounds like something that you'd curse your enemies <laughs> with. Yeah, right. Regret is the opiate of fools. Oh, I got that one too. Mm. That's good. Uh, yeah, that is a really good one. That that one has. I, I think is a very, I, th I think there's a lot to discuss in that one in particular too. Like, I, I, I don't know the, 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 I know any like see your enemies contend your lover's melancholy is like, to me is like almost just about like maintaining stability, at least in my reading of it is like, if your enemies aren't actively trying to kill you, you're, you're doing pretty good and your lovers, <laughs> you want to keep them like, it under your like thumb, you know, like you want them to be under your control. You know, it felt feels very callous, to be honest. Like that that proverb, the idea of like manipulate people to your whims. And we know, you know, I know in plays the Jinan. Mm -hmm. Is that the name of the like the Game of Thrones mm -hmm. that they do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that yeah, that that it feels very true to that. Um, as opposed to like, yeah, the regret being like the opiate of fools, I think is a, is very, there, there are some interesting ideas there, right? About like the nature of regret and what is its use and, you know, what wounds are we potentially salving by lingering, wallowing in regret? 
That's a really beautiful way to put it. I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was one I admit as, as someone, I definitely, I, I can be someone who sometimes wallows in feelings and regrets and, and things. And so that, that definitely was one that I was like, Oh man, that that's a gut punch. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a good one. What other, Steve, you're always good with the quotes. What, what other quotes do you got? Um, well, one of them was about the dragon. Uh, the good, the great dragon reared his, uh, his bull chest above the sorcerer, revealing a necklace of steaming human heads. That's crazy. <laughs> steaming human heads. <laughs> That's part of what makes the series so readable is like, even when it's really bleak, it's so badass. Like there's just like crazy, like the most heavy metal things, you yeah. know, it reminds me of Malazan a lot hmm. in that way where you're like, a dragon wearing a necklace of steaming human heads. That's insane. Like, I, I, I don't want to smell it. Like, I'm sure that, that's disgusting, but that's so cool, too. It's, oh, man. So the dragon is, like, saving it for a snack for later or, or what? <laughs> like a trophy. a trophy. Yeah. I think it's a trophy, yeah. Snack. It's like snack. <laughs> you never know when you're going to get hungry, right? You know, you got to keep that around. Like That was so cool that the dragon appeared in the dream. I don't know. I just, that was oh, so cool. Was I loved it. Yeah, I'm gonna. It's like that's why I read yeah. fantasy. Is like stuff like that scene. <laughs> like I love. Oh, love it. Going back in that ancient history, dragons. You know the the old politics. Like the 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 so called like golden age that you know freaking probably sucked, but is like very dramatic and beautiful in its melancholy way. And, oh, Talk about. I mean, we learn about the the apocalypse itself. Talk about bleak. Every infant stillborn for eleven years. Oh my god! The high north was Thank destroyed. You, All women were violated. It was. I mean, it's not a direct quote, but just just awful. Um, and one of the names of a dragon, I think, or I'm not sure if that's a dragon or not, or something else. There's some mention of some other weird monsters, which got me excited a little bit. <laughs> But there was some, yeah. one of them called Kara Sinsinoi, Angel of Endless Hunger. Or, or that's, no, that's the, wait, that's one of the names of the no god. I'm so sorry. That's the no god has like mm -hmm. five different names or four different names depending on the, like, the language. Um, but there, you, you want to talk about the etymology stuff? It definitely is intentional that he, the, his, one of his names is Mog Pharaoh, mm -hmm. Mog Pharaoh. Like definitely putting that little pharaoh, you know, god king sort of thing in there, and I think that definitely alludes to things about his character and what he is, right? I mean, because he remains mysterious to us at this point, but I, I definitely think that there are implications based on if you read into that potential etymology, which I again, based off of how Baker writes, I think is intentional. So the other, the other, when we. I assume it was the no God speaking again. This is still just chapter one. And he yeah. says, what am I? I thought like that, that blew me, that blew me away. Because, like I said, I had to read this multiple times is like, he was brought back. He doesn't even know. It's like he was awoken from oblivion or something. So it was just like, that was just, um, you know, mind altering. Absolutely. No, that, oh, cool. that was one of the real shocks to me. I'm so glad you, you brought that up. I t actually totally had, like, that wasn't on my brain. Uh, that was crazy because he did not read it all like I imagined he would read. Like you said, he almost read like he was this, like, 
senile yeah. entity, you know? Yeah, like exactly, like had that like newborn aspect. It, it didn't feel that malevolent, strangely, you know? But it's all of these very clearly malevolent forces summoning him and, you know, seemingly fighting for him, uh, which certainly, you know, begs the question, right? Like, what are are these people actually, you know, like, they claim to be fighting for their God, but like, are they actually mm -hmm. like, does the no God actually care? You know, what, what's the no God's deal? Like, we don't really know. We know what his followers say and like, are pursuing and that sort of thing, you know, very classic apocalyptic evil. But, you know, what what is his deal personally? Because that through a huge like that's a big question mark now that i honestly just kind of took for granted as him being this like pure evil force but that's not how like your traditional fantasy you know that's not how sauron talks you know <laughs> like what, what's going on there like I, I don't i don't know i like the uh and then the the and then the voice spoken through the throats of a hundred thousand oh, shrank man. so cool so cool. There's uh, the, 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 I don't know if this is a beast, the Bashrag. I don't know if you know what that is from other fantasy stuff, but I didn't know that. So I'm assuming there's other kinds of monster type, you know, I don't know, that we're going to encounter. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's just to get you, get you excited and thinking about, well, this consult stuff is kind of a big deal. <laughs> Yeah. All right, we we have to get dragons again. The dragons have to come back. They can't just keep teasing us with dragons. They can't just be in the past. They've got to come back. There's there's just no way. Steve, I assume this isn't the last time we see them. <laughs> I don't know. We'll just wait and see. <laughs> there's at least four of four dip four of them, and then I thought we learned that Saswatha is the one that struck down the one that's in the, the, the dragon Scafra that's in the dream, but it doesn't explain how. Like, yeah. Not to bring us all the way back to the beginning, but those were just some notes that I had that I just was like, wow, this is just, uh, you know, quite a, quite an opening. Absolutely. Not to bring us to the end it's of fine. the four chapters, but... <laughs> Um, there was, uh, we had mentioned earlier, I forgot to mention this at the time when Espinette and, um, uh, were together and there was the skin spy that was, listen that was listening to them and watching on page, uh, or it was right at the end of chapter three. He was, the skin spy was wearing a harlot's face. Was that the same prostitute as the one that a commune was with earlier in the chapter? Ooh. I wondered that I didn't, that didn't occur to me the first time. Oh, I, I, I thought it could have been, I didn't think of her. I thought it was the person who um, Esmer had greeted as they went in, the one who was her friend and who knew about a commune. I kind of thought it might have been her. Um, I didn't think it was um, the one that a commune had before Esmer because of proximity. Like I thought he left her there, but it's possible that might she might have followed them. I do remember there being, I, I would have to reread it to really kind of analyze it, but I do remember it being kind of weird, mm -hmm. like the way he was experiencing pleasure in that scene that reminded me of 
the previous experiences that particularly Esmanet mm -hmm. had. And then, um, you know, there, there was like weird, I, I, maybe it was just the way it was written. Like, again, I'd have to go back and reread it to see if it actually was like super weird and like maybe magic-y or if that was just, you know, being very deep into his perspective and his tortured psyche. Mm, that's a good point. Do they need to kill the person to wear their face? Or did this, or was it a consult who, because apparently she looked a lot like Esmanet. So was it a consult mm. who wore Esmanet-ish face? Yeah. Oh. Like intentionally, mm. that's yeah, that's interesting. If they like make up the faces, they don't have to. I I just assumed that they killed the person and then like took their face, but I I don't know if we know one way or another for certain. Mm. Mm. It's still so freaky. The coming like the mm. face unfolding. <laughs> like, yeah, yep. That was oh, we didn't get to talk about that last time because and we never did a full book wrap, wrap up. You hadn't read that yet, Varsha. Yes. <laughs> the face hugger shit, like yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was interesting. I did not like the face being compared to a spider. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was a that was a really good ending. I thought. Didn't break you out too much. Didn't break you out too much. Mm, no. I mean, other than the spider. So I guess I was not as freaked out as I thought I might have been uh, based on how you guys described it because I don't visualize when I read that much. So I'm like, oh. yeah, cool, spider. <laughs> they were just words. <laughs> this is, there's no actual sp spider crawling out of the page. So I was okay with that. <laughs> I definitely don't have as visceral reaction as I do when I like watch horror, but. It wasn't even the like, I thought it was really cool, the spider unfolding from the face. But when it was on a Kamian's face, that's when it got me. Again, oh. it's the face thing from like Aliens. Like when that thing is on you, I'm oh, <laughs> oh, oh. like, uh-uh, no, no, thank you. Uh-uh. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, well. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't imagine that they were, f I, I thought for a long time. Or, or I was terrified throughout that scene because we hadn't seen Espinet since the end of the previous book that she could have changed face, that she could be consult. Because yeah. like Mike said earlier, <laughs> anybody could be consult. But we, and we need a callous perspective to tell us one way or the other, right? So um, yeah, unless that happens, we don't know. Anybody could be anybody, I guess. As, and, and also we saw but I don't think Esmanet is consult, but we also saw Kellis deciding not to declare that someone is. So if we are in someone else's perspective and Kellis is not calling anyone out as consult, that doesn't mean anything. So, right. yes, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, yeah, we have to be in his perspective to know one way or another, right? Or, or in the consult's perspective, um, as it were. I definitely do think that to me felt like the shrewdest aspect of his not wanting to tell, like, because there's a part of me that was really frustrated by him not identifying Sarcellus mm -hmm. as uh, a face Great. thing, skin spy. Um, but I think the fact that the consult themselves don't know 
that he can identify them is a big, like, that's a big weapon. Yeah. That certainly if he identifies Arcellus, it starts to become clear, like, they'll figure out and then he will be targeted. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's probably a little too soon for him to directly confront the consult. Yeah. Did did anyone else think that Sirius's mother could be consult? My only piece of evidence is that she was interested in how he found out, mm-hmm. which I guess could be just a matter of curiosity. But also she wants to know <laughs> how he found out. So it's a good point. I think she also doesn't she push is it Zarias? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. She says I think she's like really pushing him to be even more ambitious. So you gotta wonder where that's really coming from too yeah. sometimes. It's a good it's good it's a good question. But it also seems like a wastage of resources. It's like, you know, they're planting spice wherever they think they need them. Why do you need two with the emperor? You already have one who has his ear. Mm-hmm. So Seems unnecessary, so probably not, but. We do get a. That was, yeah, we didn't even talk about that scene. Uh, that, that was an, I love, love getting more of their mess. <laughs> the world's worst family. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yep. In in the previous book, whenever we went back to Sirius, I was like, ah, not him again. <laughs> but I think we got enough Akamian this time that I was like, yeah, cool, break from that. <laughs> I, th- I think I was projecting on Espinata earlier because I'm a little tired of his weeping. But I see why. <laughs> <laughs> I see why, but yeah. <laughs> That's fair. I, I think the thing that annoys me about him is that he doesn't make decisions, you know? Like that he he is just so passive, um, which, which like I, I I can like I understand and I can sympathize again. Like I'm a, I'm a very neurotic person, so I know what it's like. But he's in a position where like he really, if he wants, I'm also someone who really likes control. And Akami is actively choosing to not have control over the things going on around him. Like he he is just being so passive, mm. uh, and he has potentially so much power. Uh, it, it and he's not utilizing that power. Um, which drives me nuts, but I, I like a Camian. I, I do like him. He's just frustrating. I, I will say though, I don't, I'm not sensing it as much myself. He, he has wisdom. So he, I think he's feels he's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't for a lot of things. Um, there's a, there was once, there's one passage where he says something like, I could like, I could like destroy everybody in this, in this room Right. And so he is, I think like he is aware of what he can do, but, um, because of what he, because of his, because of his role with, um, with the, what's it called? The mandate, the mandate, um, and, and, and the fact that he has these dreams of this person that died 2000 years ago, I think it does make him very, um, challenge causes him to be really challenged and, but I didn't notice the lack of decision making as much. I think he's just very much pontificating and pondering, and I'm I kind of relate to that. So totally. I don't know. Not that it's a good no, thing. No, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I I I think it is relatable. I think it it is just frustrating sometimes mm-hmm. from like particularly knowing because we we can see all the pieces moving around him, right. And the people making decisions around him and he's actively choosing to like not enforce his will, which is 
I think part of the reason it's frustrating is because we know he's relatively more moral than a lot of the people around him, right? Like he, he is not a complete sociopath, like half the characters, you know, or so violently damaged, you know, like Nair, um, who are not afraid to like make things happen and pursue their ends. While he, I, again, I think it's very understandable where he comes from. And, you know, I mean, I, I think there's a real argument to be had that maybe it is the more moral, you know, or ethical choice to like not, you know, force things or potentially make unsavory decisions towards, you know, whatever ends you're pursuing. But uh, it, it, he does do a lot of thinking and talking and crying. Um, but I, I like him. I like him. I, 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 I do like it. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love his character. And same with Esmond. I, I'm, I, was really appreciating in this part of the book the fact that we have a harlot as a main character i don't know of any other book that does that but i feel like it gives a really compassionate exploration of a person <laughs> who needs to resort to do that for a living right uh, i i'm really appreciating asmanet's character in this book i love how she's written and yeah, I'm really eager to see where it goes with her. Yeah. There are layers to her too, right? Like her sexuality is really important. And I would, uh, you know, would certainly say it's one of the most important aspects of her character, but it's not the sole defining aspect of her character, right? Yeah. Which is where so often when you look at like noir stories or like, you know, a lot of cyberpunk sort like different ones where you do get kind of the POV of a prostitute, they're often defined like strictly by their sexuality. Um, and while she definitely is grappling with that, it is not the totality of her, which is something I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that I, I, I'm trying to find the quote, but what, um, the fact that she took during, uh, whatever their lovemaking with, uh, Akamian, that, that was the most a prostitute could give. I, that, that was such a beautiful line. I really... Oh, here it is. Uh, Tonight she would take, and that Akamian knew was as much as any whore could give. Um, yeah, that, that was really interesting. Like, that she could bring herself to love, and um, yeah. But I, I, think oh, this see, I, I read that as, I mean, beautiful in a poetic way, but to me that reeked of his, like, fucked up view of like prostitutes mm -hmm. like to me i thought that was a, a judgment he was casting on her i read that as like very cynical and sad mm. i i read that as him understanding helplessness of prostitutes in that regard but yeah like i guess it could go either way or maybe well i think i think it is a, an aspect of it right like to me he like he pities like he pities that's true yeah. prostitutes but he doesn't like he doesn't really try to understand mm -hmm. um and so he's like yeah like giving you know this sort of body and time is like i don't know again that, I mean, that was just my reading of it um but i i also definitely the way i read akamian is he is very judgmental of the whole business um and and of esmanet um which i think is part of the reason he loves her is because she is also something he loathes. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of 
classic self-destructive behavior. Hmm. I think the thing that well, it, it, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that that that, uh, and I think the, the one of the reasons Esmanet, and again, this is just my reading of it. Um, but one of the re- reasons I think Esmanet loves him is because he is what she wants to be, you know, um, and they they. I think that's why I like Esmanette more is I feel like she's less judgmental than he is. Um, but that's also very much a symptom of like, like that's very intentional by my reading, very like classic, like patriarchal sort of, you know, the judgments like it put upon women sort of thing. Um, and particularly women's sexualities and how they, you know, use them or, or don't use them as it may be. Um, but it's complex too, right? Because you're like, yeah, I get it. If you're like, you're someone who wants to be monogamous with someone and their whole job is not being monogamous. Like I, I see why that would be, you know, torturous. Um, so it, certainly there are complexities. I think- um, You were saying, Mike? Yeah, what, um, what one thing I, I, I remembered or remember thinking is the thing that um, Akami and the reason why he, he loves Esmanette, I think, is is because she's almost at his level intellectually, but more importantly, she believes in him, where no, everybody thinks he's yeah. nuts. Everybody thinks he's, totally. yeah. you know, uh, you know, <laughs> he's like the person that thinks the sky is falling or whatever all the time, and, and it cannot be easy to be around. And to, to have one person yeah. outside of the mandate school um, is, you know, probably keeps him going. You know, I, I, I don't know why those people aren't suicidal, frankly. <laughs> I don't know. Because their, <laughs> their lives are, are, if you, I mean, their whole raison d'etre is, you know, we are watching for the apocalypse. You know, it's not... <laughs> doesn't get you out of bed in the morning so much per se. Of course they are waking up <laughs> yeah. from nightmares. Um, so that is the one thing that I think is really important about their relationship. Um, totally. Yeah. I, I want to be clear. I don't think that their relationship either way is defined by one thing. I think it's much more complex than that. And I think the thing you're speaking to Mike is part of what I really love yeah. and like why I care about their relationship versus just being like, Oh, screw this, you know, like there, there is this very sweet, wholesome human aspect of like, they do fill niches for each other, like in inside holes inside each other, you know, like Akamian respects her in a way that most of her customers do not, not only in, in how like gentle he can sometimes be with her, but like in the fact that he also includes her, you know, in the conversations and that he doesn't, you know, condescend to her well he he does condescend but in the way he condescends to everyone you know because he's like always trying to explain everything you know um it's just you know it's just an aspect of who he is um a very kind of classic scholarly thing um and yeah there's a lot of sweetness there yep as opposed to the ziri yeah we got to wrap up (laughs) So, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was trying to find a gap to say, are there any closing thoughts? But if you guys want to carry on, I can drop off. I will be done in 10, 15 minutes, though. So if you 
have more oh, things to talk too. about. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So, <laughs> uh, any anything else to say in closing? Does anybody have? Oh, any? um, just want to mention for anyone reading along with us, we will be discussing uh, five through eight for next week. Oh yeah, I forgot to do that. <laughs> yeah, to the end of part one. To the end of part one, right? Any, I, I guess my last thought is that the uh, messed up Imperial Royal Lancer family, um, I agree with you, Varsha, when I say earlier, they're best in small doses. <laughs> when I get small doses, I find them so funny in a really like dark comedy way. Like I, I didn't immediately like to start, but particularly as I've like seen them over time and they've started like getting less and less powerful. And so they're kind of more and more pathetic. <laughs> uh, I, I find them increasingly funny. Um, as they're just like grasping at everything and they're so horrible. They're just, they're just the worst people. Um, you're like, if it was like, just like they were the only people in the world, I would be like consult, like go for it. Like (laughs) this, this is your planet. You, you take it, wipe them out. Like they're, they're just so bad, but, uh, I love it. Love it. Yep. I, I agree. Uh, They are funny in small doses. Um, Cool. Let's do outros real quick. Sorry to rush. Uh, but yes, Steve, Steve uh, where can people find you? You can find uh, me on pagetwing.com. It's the best way. All the stuff is posted there. Join our forums and uh, come and be our friend. <laughs> yeah. And Mike? Yeah. Uh, I'm also on Page Chewing Forum. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, talking with Steve at the pick of the week discussion on the comics and manga page chewing podcast. So we hope people can join that as well. We've got a lot, we got a lot to discuss in the next one. So yeah, a lot to talk about. Yeah. Nice. And Kyle, you can find me atop the lonely mountain, uh, guarding my horde of books. <laughs> uh, no, I, you can find me, on page stream probably is the best place, but otherwise on most social media at Carl D. Albert and uh, look forward to chatting with you. Oh, and, and check out Carl's book. I'm about 160 pages in. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Did you already say the name? Sorry. Truth of crowns. <laughs> Truth of crowns. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. We'll see everyone in a week discussing chapters five through eight. Um, yeah. Happy Christmas, holiday, whatever others you celebrate. (laughs) Until then, if you listen to this before the holiday comes up. (laughs) Bye.